Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. doesn't like me. This microphone does not like me. There we go. Great. Uh, thanks so much, Joe. Uh, do keep that passage of the Bible open, and uh, there's an outline on the inside of your white notice sheets um, for you to take notes or follow along with the talk as we go along. Uh, we are now, as uh, Elias has reminded us, firmly in the season of Advent. I hope some of you have been enjoying breakfast chocolate, which, as we all know, is the best kind of chocolate. And even, even the most Grinch-like Scrooge of us must reluctantly now admit that it is beginning to look a bit like Christmas. Advent is all about waiting. We only have to wait a few weeks for Christmas Day, but Advent reminds us that God has been working throughout the whole of human history, patiently laying down plans and purposes over thousands of years, waiting for the moment where he would come down. When God took on human flesh, when God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, probably to most of us here this morning, that is a very familiar idea to you. Perhaps if you're new uh, from another country, another culture, that's a new idea, in which case, uh, welcome. I'm glad to give you that news. Uh, But for most of us, we are sort of used to the idea that Christianity teaches that there was a moment in human history when God came down, when God became man. And we mustn't let the familiarity of that stop us asking the question, why did that happen? Why did God become man? Now, it's an important question because many people have raised objections to this idea. People over history have said that this is a false idea or a bad idea or a silly idea, and that is because of what someone has called the scandal of particularity. That is, God became a particular person. God came into this world at a particular time, at a particular place, with a particular body. God became man in the particular historical person of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And the scandal of particularity says, well, what possible relevance can that have to us here and now? We cannot meet this man face to face. We cannot go to him. We cannot talk to him. We cannot benefit from him. He can't visit our church. What is the use of that? And why did God need to do that anyway? If God has a problem with his world, surely he can sort it out without having to take on human flesh. If the problem's sin, if we have a problem with sin, well, surely God can just forgive us from heaven, can't he? And isn't that better? Isn't that more universal and timeless than everything channeling through this one particular man in this one particular country at this one particular point in history? And added to that is a scandal of the particular kind of person that Jesus was. A man born to unimpressive parents in an unimpressive village. A man who lived a short life, 
a man who died a gruesome death in his early 30s, in a time so far in the past that people haven't even invented paper yet, what possible use can that be for us here and now with our problems in our world, in our modern world in Lancaster in the 21st century? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring over the next uh, few weeks in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be dipping in and out of it a bit. We've, uh, we're going to be skipping over huge chunks of it. Uh, we preached through the whole book uh, a few years ago, and those sermons are available on our website if you want to fill in the gaps. But I'll just orient us to the book by telling you that this is a letter written to a church which was largely made up of people who become Christians from a Jewish background. That's why it's called Hebrews. <clears throat> And under the pressure of suffering and persecution and temptation, facing the hardship of the normal Christian life, these Christian people were drifting away from faith in Jesus. And they were drifting back to what was comfortable and familiar to them, their old way of life under the old covenant. And this letter is is written to say, "Don't, don't do it. And the reason why not is that the Old Covenant, the whole Old Testament, was actually designed to point forward to something better. Jesus is the fulfillment and the flowering, the climax of the Old Testament. And so to reject Jesus, to go back to the Old Covenant, is not only to miss out on Jesus, it's it's to misunderstand the whole covenant itself. Jesus has come, and Jesus is better And in the first chapter and a half, the author has told uh, this church that Jesus is better than the angels. The angels who were the supreme messengers of the old covenant were created by Jesus and exist to serve and worship him. Jesus is better than the angels. And he's also been saying that Jesus is the better Adam. You see, it was always God's plan for a human to rule over God's creation. Adam failed to do that and so did everyone else who has ever lived, but Jesus did rule and does rule over God's creation as a man. And so it's right and fitting that an obedient, suffering man is the head of the new humanity. That's where we've got to in the book of Hebrews. That's the context of our passage today. And then you can already hear that in those uh, early chapters, we already have some answers to why God became man. But perhaps you could go and read those chapters this week and, and think about that. But in this passage, we get another one, another brilliant reason why God became man. And it's all to do with an old slavery. I wonder what you think people would say is the biggest problem facing mankind just now. Is it Omicron? Is it climate change? Is it social injustice? A foreign enemy, perhaps, with the power to cut our gas pipes or our internet connections? Well, look at verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2 with me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The author points to a deeper problem and a worse enemy than anything I've mentioned so far. It's the problem, in fact, which underwrites all those other problems. Those things are a problem because death is a problem. Death is the real enemy. It's the enemy which is hiding in plain sight because no matter what we do to tackle coronavirus or to reduce our emissions or to get justice for people, all of which are very good things to do and laudable aims, I hate to tell you this, folks, but 100% of us are going to die anyway. 
Now, we might say, well, that, well that's natural, though. That's just life. That's the circle of life. That's the natural order of things. Of, of course, we're going to die. But death itself is not the problem. It's the way we die. It's the way we live before we die. That's the problem we need to fix. And while it is excellent and kind to think about improving our quality of life, and if you can put it this way, improving our quality of death, the Bible stubbornly insists that, no, death itself is the actual problem. And I think if we let it speak to us this morning, we'll find we agree. There are two reasons given to in this passage as to why death is a problem. The first is that the fact of death is a problem, and that's because of the devil. Look again at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So the Bible is completely clear that the devil is real. He is a real spiritual enemy of God and of humankind. He is a powerful and a dangerous enemy. And yet even with that knowledge, this is a very unusual verse in the Bible. If you go and read the rest of the Bible and ask the question, who has the power over life and death? The answer is very clear. It's God. It's God is the one who makes alive. God is the one who brings down to the grave. You can see that in Deuteronomy 32, 39, as well as, well, the rest of the Bible. The devil, by contrast, has no executive authority no inherent power of his own. We must not believe the caricature that this universe is a battleground between two equal opposing powers, God and Satan, good and evil. No. The devil is a creature. He owes his existence and his power to God. If you read the opening chapter of the book of Job, we see that the devil has to go and ask permission from God if he's going to do any harm to anybody. He is a creature. He is subservient. He has no power of his own. So in what way does the devil hold the power of death, as it says here in verse 15? Well, it's all to do with why death is in the world at all. If you read the beginning of the Bible, you'll see that God created a world of life and abundance in which there was no death. If you read the end of the Bible, you'll see that God's final plan for his world is one of eternal life where death is banished forever. Death is not part of the original design. It's not part of the final design of this world. So why is it here in the middle? Well, one answer to that question is because of the devil. The book of Revelation calls the devil that ancient serpent, the one who tempted our first parents into sin and therefore enticed them to come under God's judgment. The devil was the one who first encouraged humankind to disobey God, to rebel against the author of life, and so to come under the punishment of death. And he's been doing so ever since. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that all mankind follows the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's the devil continuing to tempt us to sin against our gods. Now, it must be clear that doesn't make us innocent victims. Adam and Eve and everyone else who has sinned has sinned deliberately and consciously and culpably, but the devil is the instigator and architect of our destruction. He's always egging us on to, to sin in order to put ourselves under the judgment of God, and so he is rightly called the one who holds the power of death. The point is that our death is unnatural. It is not the circle of life. It's not part of God's design. It is an interloper introduced into the world by a malign and evil spirit tempting us to destroy ourselves 
by rebelling against the giver of life. And you know, I think we all know that really. We all feel when someone close to us dies that something profoundly wrong has happened. We feel it especially perhaps when it's someone young. But even if someone dies at a good old age, even if it's someone who's a Christian who has hope for the future, we want to cry out, no. We want people back when they die. Even Jesus at the graveside of Lazarus, even though he knows that in about 20 minutes he's going to raise him from the dead, weeps for the loss of his friend. Weeps at the fact of death, which should not be. Death ends relationships. It ends our plans and purposes. That is why the book of Ecclesiastes can say that because of death and without God, everything is meaningless. We can make our lives better. We can help each other out a little bit. Maybe we can make death a sort of slightly nicer experience. But ultimately, death is the enemy hiding in plain sight that none of us can escape. Because of the devil, the fact of death is a problem. But it's not just the fact of death. The fear of death is also a problem. Look again at those verses with me. 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see that the author says that our fear of death in some way enslaves us. Now, we've had a very vivid picture of that throughout the last couple of years, haven't we? We have been at times basically locked into our houses because the threat of death was very present and real and apparent from the coronavirus. And that's raised, I think, most people's sense of anxiety about death. There are some who have been really profoundly shaken by the last couple of years. And in extreme cases, people are almost literally enslaved by their fear of death. People who won't leave their house or interact with others at all because they're very, very afraid. It's a vivid picture of what the author's talking about here, about being enslaved by the fear of death. And yet, many people are not like this. Some seem to have no fear of death whatsoever. Some people have been rather careless, perhaps even reckless over the past couple of years. The majority of people are somewhere in the middle. You know, we, we take some precautions, but they know that life has got to go on and they're slowly getting back to normal. And that's true more generally in life, isn't it? Uh, some people are naturally timid and fearful. Others, you know, look both ways before crossing the road, but are basically happy to take a few risks. A few people throw themselves out of planes for fun. But here is a universal claim that all people, all humanity, are held in slavery by fear of death. How can that be true? Well, remember, death is the enemy hiding in plain sight. 100% of us will die, and when we die, we face the judgment of our God, the giver of life. And deep down, all of us know that. The book of Romans tells us that there are certain truths about God that we all know, but we suppress including the fact that he's our creator and Lord. We know that we will one day give an account of ourselves to our maker, and that's scary. And so we do all we can, consciously or unconsciously, to keep death at bay. We handle it in different ways, of course. Some of us like to simply avoid the topic completely. We never, we never talk about it. We speak in euphemisms around it. We say that people have passed on. Perhaps we sentimentalize death by saying that those who love us never really leave us because we carry them around with us in our memories or imagine they're looking down from us from the sky somehow. 
Or perhaps we try to keep death at bay by clinging on to youth. We spend a fortune on ointments and serums and plastic surgery to keep us looking young. We dedicate ourselves to diets and exercise regimes in an attempt never to feel the symptoms of aging. Perhaps in extreme cases, we try to circumvent death by trusting in scientific advances. People all over the world working in cryogenics, trying to preserve our bodies beyond death, or trying to figure out a way to upload our consciousness to the cloud so that we can live forever on the internet, which sounds dreadful. Like, have you seen the internet? I don't want to live there. But, but there we go. Or perhaps we simply distract ourselves. We fill our days and our eyes and our ears with entertainment and novelty. We, we pack in as much into our schedules as possible so that we're too busy with life to contemplate death. We throw ourselves into work or family life. We build a secure fence around ourselves by trying to get a large bank balance and a big house and a nice life, and we never give a thought to death because we don't have to because life is good. Others invent religions in order to convince themselves and others that death is not as bad as all that. Perhaps we invent gods that are not that bothered about sin. Perhaps we invent rituals and rites and tell ourselves and tell other people if we just do enough of them, we'll make up for our sin and God will let us off. Others embrace the cold comfort of atheism. We persuade ourselves that death isn't a problem because there's no God. That means there's no hope or justice either, but never mind, at least death doesn't have to be scary anymore. Some people actively confront death, living lives of excessive risk-taking to try and brazen it out in the face face of death, to convince themselves that the thing that's scaring everybody else isn't scaring me, because I'm special, it'll be fine. If there's a God, he won't mind, he'll forgive me. I'm just going to live my life. We're scared of death because we know that judgment awaits us on the other side. And that fear of death keeps us enslaved, enslaved to lies, enslaved to distractions, enslaved to false religions, enslaved to busyness, enslaved to atheism, enslaved to pride. We never bring the question of death into the light and look at it with clear eyes and say, I deserve to die because of sin. God is right and I'm wrong. I need to get this sorted before I die and I cannot do it myself. We don't do that. And so we die unprepared to meet our maker. This is an old, old slavery. It's been rolling on for thousands of years, ever since Genesis 3. It's taken many different forms, but we're all in the same chains, enslaved to the fact and to the fear of death. And so what we need is someone, as verse 15 says to free us from our slavery. We need a new exodus. The Old Testament story of the exodus is a huge theme in this section of the book of Hebrews. In that first exodus, God rescued his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt by demonstrating his utter control over Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the serpent-like enslaver of God's people, their enemy who had the power of death over them. They could do nothing. They were utterly helpless. And yet God showed that he was more powerful than his people's bonds, more powerful than his enemies' gods, more powerful than the one who enslaved his people. And Jesus, too, showed his utter power over the devil in his earthly ministry. Do you remember? He cast out demons with a single word. He ordered them to silence, and they had to obey. But more than that, he would not let himself be tempted or distracted from his mission. Satan could not tempt him to sin and put himself under the judgment of God. And Satan could not distract him by the fear of death. 
One of the features of Jesus' remarkable life is how single-minded he is about going to his own death. He talks about it so boldly and so often that his disciples are often shocked and confused and a bit embarrassed. Towards the end of his ministry, he embarks on a single-minded march towards Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be betrayed and killed. And people are amazed because a world in slavery to the fear of death had never before seen a man so free. And as verse 14 says, this was the very reason God took on flesh. He had to share flesh and blood humanity so that he could die. Jesus did many other things when he walked this earth. He taught, he healed, uh, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, but none of those require flesh and blood. God had in the past done all those things with simple power from heaven, but there is one thing that God could not do without taking on flesh and blood. And that was to die. We'll see more clearly why Jesus had to die in a moment. But I want us to consider first the career of Jesus, if I can put it like that. Think about the shape of his life. At the beginning of chapter 1, the author's given us a breathtaking vision of the identity of the Son of God. Just flip back a page with me to chapter 1, verse 1, and read that uh, with me. And see uh, what we learn here about who Jesus is. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Can you see who Jesus is? He is the ruler, the creator, the sustainer, the heir of the whole universe. He's the eternal forever God who has existed in perfect joy and harmony and in the mutual love of the Trinity for all eternity. He is a glorious being, far higher than any of us can possibly imagine. And so picture him leaving that height foregoing the enjoyment of the throne room of heaven to come down lower than the heavens, lower than the angels to take on flesh and blood. When he gets here, he is not fated and lauded as a prince or a ruler or even a minor celebrity. He is born in weakness to nobody in a town in the middle of nowhere. He lives a life of conflict and suffering. He endures pain and grief. He is hungry, thirsty, and tired. He is sometimes sad and lonely. At the end of his life, all his friends and companions desert him, and the whole world conspires to put him him to death on a cross. And yet he does not stay dead. He rises from the grave. He ascends back to heaven, and is now, as 2 verse 9 tells us, crowned with glory and honor once again. Jesus' life has a giant sort of U-shape. Can you see that? From the highest height to the lowest low and back again. I'd like to imagine it like the swoop of a bird. Imagine a peregrine falcon or something perched dizzyingly high on a cliff or a cathedral tower, suddenly plummeting down to earth to catch something and then zooming back up to where it was. But what does this swoop, this U-shaped career of Jesus achieve? What's going on? Is this Jesus' gap here? What's happening? Well, it's a little difficult to see, but we read what it achieves in chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Now, that's a weird little verse, isn't it? What does that mean? 
It's even stranger when you know that the word translated helps is not the usual Greek word for help at all. The normal word for help is there in verse 18. That's the normal word. The word translated help here in verse 16 is a word which, wherever else it's used in the New Testament, means grabs or takes hold of. It's a word, actually, that's used once more in Hebrews, and we've got that on the screen. It's Hebrews 8, verse 9, where the author's talking about the new covenant being better than the old covenant. And he says, It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. So that phrase, took them by the hand, to grab them, to grasp them, is exactly the same word as in chapter 2, verse 16. And do you notice what's in view in Hebrews 8? It's the Exodus. So at one point in history, God took his people out by the hand, grabbed them, and pulled them out of under, under Pharaoh's grip, led them out of slavery. Well, just after the author has told us that Jesus can free us from the slavery of the fear of death, he tells us that he's come to take people by the hand once again. That image of the bird of prey swooping is it's almost perfect. The bird of prey swoops to grab something in order to bring death. Jesus swoops to grab people, to take hold of Abraham's descendants in order to bring them out of death, in order to bring them life. You see in the first exodus, Moses stepped down from his place in Pharaoh's household from a place of unimaginable glory and honor to suffer with his people, to identify with the Israelites so that God could use him to bring them out from slavery under Pharaoh. Now Jesus has done something even better. He leaves a better throne to do a better thing and accomplish a new and better exodus. He talks about the descendants of Abraham there. Later on, the author will explain that that doesn't only refer to Jewish people. In chapter 6, he will tell us that all who trust in Jesus are made into children of Abraham, sons of Abraham, heirs of his promise. And so all who trust in Jesus are freed from their slavery to the fear of death. We'll see what, that, what the implications are there, are for that in a minute. But let's ask the question finally, how's that happened? Well, it's because of the work of a faithful priest. Look at 2 verse 17 with me. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, next week, we're going to delve more into what it means for Jesus to be a merciful and faithful high priest as we look at the, at the end of chapter 4. For now, we're going to focus on what this priest has achieved. It says here that Jesus made atonement for the sins of the people. Literally, he made propitiation. You can see that in the footnote in our Bible. Uh, and the Bible's in the previous has a little footnote that says that another translation of atonement for is to turn aside God's wrath. That's the, the literal translation of the word propitiation. And that's what uh, the word he uses here. That's what it's all about. It's the act of turning aside wrath and judgment. And that is what Jesus' death is all about. In that first exodus, the Passover lamb was killed and its blood painted on the door frames of the Israelites' houses so that when God's judgment came, it passed over the Israelites and struck the Egyptians. And that was necessary because the Israelites were guilty sinners as well. They were not guilty of enslaving people, but they themselves were enslaved by the fear of death, just like the rest of us. They too were led by Satan into sin. And so they needed a substitute. 
something to stand in for them, to die instead of them, to take the wrath and judgment they deserved. That's what the whole sacrificial system of the old covenant was about, which we'll come back to in later weeks. And so here is Jesus, better than a Passover lamb, God himself and flesh, in flesh and blood, offering an infinitely more precious sacrifice to make propitiation for his own wrath, to turn aside his own judgment. Now, this is a consistently unpopular idea. People will put up with any explanation of the cross of Jesus apart from this one, that Jesus' death was a demonstration of how much he loved us or an example for us to follow, or an embracing of weakness that means he can sympathize with the lowly and oppressed. Now, there's truth to all of those explanations, and we'll see that as we go on in Hebrews. But on their own, none of those things can free us from the fear of death. Only this explanation of the cross, the one plainly offered here in Hebrews 2, that Jesus is offering a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins, taking our judgment for us, can do that. You see, we might fear many things when we fear death. We might fear a loss of control as we reach the point when neither our money nor our skills nor our status nor our medical expertise can help us. We might fear the pain of dying. We might fear the separation from loved ones and good things. We might fear for our legacy, our reputation, that at the end of our life people might judge us of failure. We might fear that we're heading into the unknown. But behind all those fears is the thing we ought to fear, the judgment of God. That is death's biggest threat. Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians, the sting of death, its sharpest weapon against us. Unless that is dealt with, we ought to fear death. Well, in Jesus' work as a faithful and merciful high priest, he offered himself as a propitiation for the sins of his people. He took the judgment on himself, and God is not so, uh, so unjust as to punish sin twice. See, the devil's work is undone at the cross. He grabbed us and dragged us under the judgment of God. When Jesus died at the low point of his swoop, he took us at our hands and pulled us out from under it as he returned to heaven, taking us with him, taking us back to good and lasting relationship with God through the forgiveness of our sins. He is the only priest we'll ever need, his death is the only sacrifice that's required. His grace is the only thing that can free us from slavery to the fear of death. And this priest now stands ready to help us. Look at 2 verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We'll come back to Jesus' suffering and temptation next week, particularly the temptation he suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I want us to cast our minds back uh, to one other time of tempting. In the Gospels, there is a moment right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Another episode that has lots of links to the Exodus story out of interest. And the devil tries to tempt Jesus by playing on his fear of death. He tries the same tricks that he's been trying with Adam and Eve, with the Israelites, with everyone who has ever lived. So Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's hungry, starving, he's on the point of death. The devil says, you don't want to die, do you? Turn the stones into bread, go on. For forget the fact that God has commanded you not to eat for this time. Forget the fact that God has made a world where stones are meant to be stones and not bread. Defy your father, turn this world upside down. Use it for yourself, remake it the way you want it to be, mold it to meet your desires, otherwise you're going to die. 
Jesus says no. The devil takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, just throw yourself off. I mean, how, it's going to be all right, isn't it? The angels are surely going to stop your fall. Come on, Jesus, you're special. God loves you. The rules don't really apply to you. It's hard being humble and obedient all the time, isn't it? Have a little fun. Test the boundaries a bit. Death isn't anything to be afraid of. Not for you. You're special. Jesus says no. The devil takes Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says to him, look, you and I both know you're God's chosen king. And so all of this is going to be yours one day. But God's way for you to get this is to go through the cross. The pain and the suffering, the torment of facing your father as judge, the weight of a billion people's sin pressing on your shoulders. You don't want that. I'll make it easy. Just bend the knee to me. I'll give it all to you and you don't have to die. Jesus says no. Jesus says no, I'm not afraid. Even though he was facing the judgment of God, the thought of which drove him to his knees, as we'll see next week, he knew that the path of obedience to God ran through the cross and that if he walked that path, then there was life awaiting him on the other side. The judgment of God would not stick to him. Death could not cling to him because he was a righteous and obedient man and therefore he was not enslaved to the fear of death. He did not give in to despair, to panic, to disobedience, to recklessness, to atheism, to pride. Those things were presented to him as temptations, and resisting them took suffering and hardship. But he never gave in. And so what about us? Sinners, disobedient people who do give in to those things, give in to them all the time. Well, it says in verse 18 that our faithful and merciful high priest stands ready to help us in those times of temptation. We'll see much more of this next week. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He's offered offered God the perfect propitiation for our sins such that when we do give in and we do fail and we give in to those fear of death and we give in to those sins, he grants us free and full forgiveness. When Satan tempts us and accuses us and says, see, you're a sinner, you're under the judgment of God, he says, no, you're a forgiven man, you're a forgiven woman. You do not need to listen to the devil's lies. He has gone through death and out the other side so that those who belong to him, who hold out empty hands to be grasped and pulled out from slavery, can be sure of a seat with him, with his father, in heaven, whatever they have done. Well, let's conclude. I want to conclude by reflecting on the last year and the sad duty we've had to conduct funerals. We've conducted the funerals of two Christian people, two members of our church family who both died young, Ian and Una. Both were relatively sudden. Both people left behind friends and family members who were and are still grieving. And yet both occasions, although they were appropriately sad, were also appropriately joyful. I wonder if you can imagine that, a joyful funeral. Not joyful because we're turning a blind eye to death or pretending it's not as serious as it is or sentimentalizing it. At both funerals, we looked death full in the face. Indeed, we spoke at both funerals about sin and judgment and death. But joyful because both of those young people were trusting in Jesus when they died. They knew that when they closed their eyes in death, the next thing they would see when they opened their eyes would be the face of their Savior, Jesus. Their sins had been dealt with at the cross of Christ, and so they meet Jesus not as their judge, but as their friend forever. 
And that truth doesn't just transform the way Christians die. It ought to transform the way Christians live. Neither Ian or Una were perfect people, but as you looked at their lives, you could see glimpses of the kind of freedom from fear that Jesus himself possessed. The freedom to speak the gospel boldly to people without worrying too much about the consequences. The freedom to handle disappointments and sufferings in life without feeling as though the world had ended because they didn't get what they wanted. The freedom to find contentment in less than ideal life circumstances, knowing they were loved and forgiven by God in the cross. The freedom to look forward to something better. A new creation where all suffering would end on the other side of judgment, no matter how hopeless the short-term future seemed. The freedom to pray and to hear the words and to sing God's praises, even as sinful people, because they knew their judgment had been dealt with. Now, this is something that we as Christians can and must grow in. I know that I don't always live my life enjoying that freedom as much as I should. And perhaps we can talk about that later over coffee. We can talk about the ways the fear of death still has a tendency to enslave us. But this passage teaches us that God became man to free us from it. In his atoning death in our place, Jesus has fully and finally dealt with the judgment of God that we deserve. And so all those who put their trust in him have nothing to fear, whether in life or in death. Once we conclude with some words from Revelation chapter 12, which are going to be on the screen. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are those who have been led astray by the devil, who have sinned and rebelled against you, who deserve the judgment of death, and who are enslaved by the fear of death in all sorts of ways. We praise you and thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh to die so that he might remove the sting of death so that he could take on himself the judgment we deserve, so that Satan's accusations would no longer stick, so that we could be welcomed into heaven, welcomed into good and lasting and uh, lasting relationship with you as our Father. Heavenly Father, please would we not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. Help us to live our lives wholeheartedly for Jesus, not fearing what the world might throw at us, not fearing what our world fears, but joyfully, freely living the life, the kind of life that Jesus did, where we can look death full in the face, unafraid, and we can live our lives full of praise and joy because of what Jesus has done for us. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.